welcome to Chat with Sandy and Karen. This is Karen Jackson, and my co-host is Sandy Maxwell. <laughs> and we are so happy to bring you Mr. David Hotler today. He is somebody that we both really admire, and we are looking forward to learning from him and also to see what what's what's up and what's happening in this part of the world. I'm talking to you from Texas, and Sandy's in Sweden. And welcome, David. Where are you talking to us from? I am located in Madrid, Spain, as of all my Awesome. Truly international podcast. This is so cool. <laughs> that's, that's part of the beauties of this entire community, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So. Sandy? Oh, go ahead. Well, yeah, no, I'm sorry. Uh, we um, we started this podcast because we're both educators, and we want um, it, we had some projects together, and we really enjoyed them. And we decided that you know it'd be fun to to listen to a podcast where you'd go to like a pub or something after work and just sit and talk about education and talk about ed tech and and what's happening. And we just had a blast doing our projects like that, even though we're international. And so that's what uh, what caused this um, this podcast to come about. So um, I just wanted to let you know that we're you know we're really excited to have you and and we're looking forward to your educational you know experience. I think that's where some of the best conversations uh, are born or finish or even take place is just in those moments when we're exhausted or we've we've just finished with a bout of working on something we're really passionate about or we've we've just finished up with uh, uh, working with a bunch of students and we're we're drained and I think those are the moments when our guard is down and we're with other teachers and we can just be very honest about how we're feeling and what we're thinking and what we're what what we perceive as being positive or negative about the experience. So I love your take on on why this kind of podcast should exist. Yeah, uh, David, so I met you last year uh, at the Google Energizer, and I remember coming to your podcasting session. It was inspiring, and then both Karen and I, we joined you on another session in July. So what is your uh, now advice to us? Um, because, I mean, during the pandemic, we've noticed a lot of educators have turned to podcasting. Um, and we looked to, we and we still think you're really good. We've listened to your advice and we're like, come on then, we're taking our experts' advice. Um, I think we can try. And we've we've done this for how long now, Karen? Six, seven months? Yes, 26 it, episodes. Yeah, it must be at least because I remember me, I remember you reaching out to me at least, gosh, four or five months ago. This has been on my calendar for a while. So it, it's, you all have been very judicious in, in your scheduling and your planning. And and I remember that being an important part of what I think as being some of the fundamentals to podcasting is that um, having a plan, sticking to the plan and keeping things, I don't want to say basic, but keeping them fundamental, I think is important. Um, and it sounds like just based on the what I'm seeing from where you started and where you are now, that that is sort of what you've stuck to. It's the conversation that's important um it's it's getting the right people not to say that i'm one of them but but rather finding someone that you can have a conversation with uh where it's comfortable and you're and you can record it and and put it out later is an important part of a podcast people want to hear um people in their natural environments no no they do so i i've been um stalking you david on your social media accounts so tell us more about the Adobe uh, Educator program. 
Okay. All right. So um, as everyone knows, in the whole world of education, Adobe sort of has, has pocketed the corner of creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, they have immense communities of creative educators and, and just creators in general. And um, they reached out to HyperDocs, uh, of which I am a part of, and they said, you know, we're putting on a, a, a summit, an educator's summit this July, and we're looking to bring to it sort of the magic of HyperDocs um, and, and some of the, they, they wanted to bring together what Adobe has in their, their corner of creativity and what HyperDocs has in their instructional design um, realm into an educator summit. And so we partnered up and we are putting together a really fun two days in July to engage educators, to engage creators, um, and hopefully just engage uh, people in general when it comes to education to get them excited about either being in the middle of the school year if you're in Australia or being in the middle of summer if you're somewhere else and you're looking to go back to uh, the classroom. We want to excite teachers about integrating technology and creativity and the crossroads, the practice of those two things in their classroom to empower students to be in the driver's seat of the lesson and the driver's seat of their own in their own learning. And I think that's that's the big point that we're trying to to drive home. Oh, that sounds really good. But that was part of, uh, you said hyper, uh, HyperDocs, which was, I think Karen mentioned earlier, teachers yeah. give this. Okay. So this requires a little bit of an explanation because um, I think some of the best things in education have grown from sort of the, the dirt of the earth and the, the best parts are grassroots. And HyperDocs is the epitome of grassroots. Uh, yeah. it was yep. Back when HyperDocs, or rather when Google Docs came around and it was called GAFE, right? Google Apps for Education. Um, and someone figured out that you could take a Google Doc and essentially turn it into a web page. Uh, so you could have a Google Doc that had its own permalink and, and it could have links to other places. And then they started to figure out, well, if some of the things that we ask students to do then link back to that place, it, it starts to become this permanent archive of learning, so to speak. So that's that was the, the, the birth of HyperDocs. And then since then, it has evolved into anything that has a link that someone can click on that also engages them in this learning experience. And so teachers control four things in their classroom. They, they control the content, they control the process, they control the product, and they control the learning environment. And they have a varying degree of control over those four things. And students approach content process, product, and learning environment with their readiness to learn, their, their personal interest level, um, and, and then just their, their um, desire to, to engage with that teacher. And so a hyperdoc allows a teacher to, to control all of those things. And so when we get involved with Adobe and we get involved with uh, these, other, these other events, we're excited because we're trying to shift the, the cycle of learning. And, and put it more in the hands of the students. And we want the students to take control of the learning and we want the students to be in charge of the excitement and, and be able to approach a teacher's lesson however they are ready to learn uh, instead of it being confined to um, a very strict set of constraints. I, I love that idea where the student is the driver. And that just has always inspired me as an educator. When I first learned about that, that the, the student is the one driving, because then I looked at myself and in my own educational journey, and I learned when I was the driver, when I chose what I wanted to learn and um, 
how I wanted to present it and, you know, creating products and things like that. And I love how a hyperdoc is a guide for students to, to, to follow that, that learning journey. And uh, I think it just goes so well with education and, and inspiring them. When I was little, I would watch sci-fi movies and television shows, and they would depict a future where you just had like a, a pill and that little pill was your whole meal, right? And to me, a hyperdoc is sort of like this self-enclosed learning experience. And it's a teacher encapsulating all of the things that they need to encapsulate into an experience so that the learner knows where to go, right? The process of one, two, three, four, five, they understand what's expected of them. So the product that they should, they should produce in order to show that they know what they know. They understand the constraints of the learning environment um, and, and what will be looked at and what won't be looked at or what is seen to be progress or not seen to be progress. And that they, they also understand um, the constraints of the content. So that could be um, the depth of the knowledge that they should understand or, or simply the scope of the knowledge. And that always kind of stuck with me that when I started thinking about what a hyperdoc is, is this kind of encapsulated learning package, this um, deployable learning experience wherever you are, so long as you have access to it, not necessarily the internet, just, just whatever's inside of that learning experience. I kind of fell in love with that because it feels very empowering to me uh, as an adult. When I think about learning, um, I, I don't think about sitting down in a classroom, right? I think about, for example, if I needed to learn how to fix uh, a chair in my house or, or change the oil or repair something, uh, I turn to YouTube. I start, I start asking questions that will lead me to the correct resource to give me the information that I need to know um, that's in time. But that skill of being able to find the things that I need, being resourceful, that didn't just come naturally. Being resourceful in a particular environment requires some training. And it requires a little bit of training about how to um, explore that environment, albeit the internet or um, uh, your, your neighborhood or the people who live around you. But it requires some skill in, in looking around you and finding the resources that you need, resourcefulness, right? And I think that's what Hyperdux does, is it teaches people how to be resourceful. Um, and it does it in these small bite-sized ways so that later, uh, as an adult, we sort of can quickly just create our own hyperdoc when it comes to learning something. I uh, found when we started doing blended learning in my pu public school that where I used to teach, that hyperdocs were a great way to guide that one station where students were either exploring or creating projects or something like that. It was uh, where you want to increase the independence of the student, but yet give them the resources on where to search for the information, things like that. Karen, it's absolutely imperative during uh, online or, or entirely virtual learning that students have an independence from the learning environment, the space where they're used to sitting. So if we, if we were to look at those four things that I was saying before, the content, the process, the product, and the learning environment, traditionally, when you're sitting in a classroom, the learning environment encapsulates a lot of those other things. And so I look around the classroom and I see anchor charts and I see um, stations and I see something that the teacher has put on the board and I see signs over the door or I might be ELL and I'm learning new words through postcards around the room. When I'm sitting in my house in front of a laptop and a webcam, I don't get any of that, right? And so the learning environment that a teacher can control in a virtual environment or even a hybrid environment is very different. And I think what a lot of us learned during the pandemic is that it is not necessarily less 
it's just different. It's not wrong, it's just different. It's not worse, it's just different. And so when we apply new teaching models to a new learning environment, we will have a varying degree of success. And what we saw was during the pandemic that a lot of teachers who applied the hyperdox methodology of teaching to their learning environment, which oftentimes was Google Classroom and Zoom, um, they had a great deal of success. And, and a lot of that is because of that analogy that I used before. They have encapsulated the, the elements that they would normally include in their lesson. So the students walk into my classroom when the bell rings and they walk out when the bell rings. That's the sort of the end caps of that encapsulation, the time capsule that takes place within that 50, 30, 45 minutes uh, when I have you face. Hello? Karen, can you hear me? You're on mute. Yes, I think we may have lost David. Oh, no. Okay. So, so while we're waiting for David, yeah, he talked about two very, uh, sorry, the four processes, content, yes. product, the process, and the? Pro uh, proceed. Was it procedure? No. Procedure. I think so. Maybe. He's going to join us again, I'm sure. Yes. We're, to all our listeners, we are just having a commercial break about high. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and how important it is and how useful they are, uh, no matter the learning environment. And yes. I think keeping the student in control of that uh, learning environment is key to helping them um, helping them move forward no matter whether you're online or you're offline or face to face or whatever yes exactly that was, good. That was powerful excellent so yeah hyperdox is quite um resourceful yes and uh, i didn't uh, i had a a, a book, there's a HyperDocs handbook that's written by, oh, uh, just, uh, dang it. I just had the, the Lisa Highfill. She's one of the authors. But uh, I was at, I did a book study with Trevor McKenzie and Lisa Highfill. Trevor McKenzie's book was The Inquiry Mindset. And he, we did the book study with HyperDocs. And that, that was really the first time I'd been a learner with HyperDocs. So uh, it was really a fabulous, uh, fabulous experience. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome back. I don't know what happened. Uh, we, we took a commercial break. Yeah, commercial break. We did a recap and uh, we um, uh, really were into what you were saying. That was great. <laughs> I think a lot of teachers found comfort in the guidance that a hyperdoc provides during virtual learning because it it intrinsically asks for many of the things that when you're planning a virtual lesson you might tend to forget i think that's yeah. a good summation of what that you don't always think about um some of the elements that are in your physical space and you don't always think about uh, the timing and and a hyperdoc really brings a lot of those things to the forefront in the planning process because it is a lesson that teachers prepare that they give to students and so because of that it requires some foresight into the idea that when I hand this off to a student I'm not I, I might not be available to answer their question and so what that requires is, is, is really like every step of the way, I need to think about what are the frequently asked questions and how do I make sure that the students either don't have to ask that question because I've already answered it, or if they were to ask that question, I have prepared for them a sequence of responses that, that meet their needs. For, for teachers, how do you recommend, uh, you know, that 
So the front end loading of the teacher's time is, is in the creation and anticipating the questions. How do you think, what makes it, mm, how can we make it easier for teachers to do that? If I'm, if I'm just trying to create my first hyperdoc, what do you recommend? What's a good starting place? We always recommend starting with a pre-created hyperdoc. Um, we have a repository of resources on our website at hyperdocs.co slash teachers give teachers. And I know that, that, that Sandy and Karen will make sure that all the listeners have access to that link. But the best place to start is with someone else's work. And so uh, we suggest that you find a hyperdoc that is very similar to the process and the content that you're teaching. And then once you have a hyperdoc that is close to what you find is the process and the content, right, the, the scope of curriculum and the order in which you should teach that, that scope of curriculum, then we suggest that you modify it. We call it remixing where you make a copy of that hyperdoc. And from Teachers Give Teachers, it's, it's incredibly easy. It's essentially uh, a repository of lessons and you search for the one that, that meets your needs based on a filter of criteria or some keywords. You find the one that works for you. And if, if it's a Microsoft 360 document or a Google Doc, uh, you simply make a copy with the button on our site and then you start to modify it for you. And so the, the two things then that we suggest that a teacher start to, to change then is, is the, the product. So what, what they're asking the students to physically produce. Um, and it might, it might be the same thing as the original hyperdoc, but the new teacher, the remix teacher needs to add their unique link. So, as an example, you might get to the end of a lesson and you're asking the students to use uh, Adobe Spark or uh, Flipgrid to show what they know. Um, and you'll want to change whatever link it is in that lesson to just match your Flipgrid account or your Google drive folder so that the Adobe Spark that they make, the Spark post or the video or whatever Flipgrid they make, essentially it's going to the place where you're going to find it and not the previous teacher. Um, and then we obviously encourage teachers to take a little ownership of the design, the learning environment that is a hyperdoc because design matters. Um, and, it, and the, you know, the function, the form follows function and, and, and students will be gravitated towards things that look and match the branding of your classroom. And so I think that's one of the things that teachers in the 21st century will start to do is, is to identify their own personal teaching brand, so to speak, um, within their classrooms. But in general, that's where we recommend you start is to remix someone else's lesson um, and make it your own. If not, most teachers having now gotten through the pandemic have probably experienced some version of a hyperdoc and maybe not even known it. So if you understand what it is, uh, it's essentially a, it's a document. So it could be a, a Word doc on 360 or a web page, a, a Nearpod, a, um, a Google Doc, a slide deck. Uh, whatever, but essentially it's something that has links to resources, right? Uh, multimedia resources, so podcasts, GIFs, uh, videos, blogs that explain your topic and then a way for students to take what they've learned and show you that they know what they know. So we sort of categorize that into three categories, explore, explain, apply. We want to create a space where students understand an essential question and they're able to explore the multimedia resources that best appeal to their readiness as a learner. I like to read. I like to watch a video. I want to hear someone speak. Um, that's where you explore. In the explain feature, that's where we need a teacher. Hyperdocs do not claim to replace teachers. They simply augment teacher superpowers. And that explain section means that we need the teacher to sort of bring together that essential question and the resources and then the product. That is where we're understanding 
what it is that the, the master teacher is expecting from the, the students and understanding what they need to do to show that they know what they know. And then the apply section is where those students then have that opportunity to uh, apply their learning and show to their peers and share with their peers what they know so that not only am I showing you, the professor, what I know, but I'm also able to see what the other students are producing and sort of understand intrinsically just where am I in this process? Um, because oftentimes we find if we allow students to assign their own grades based upon what their peers are producing, they tend to put themselves right where we would put them. They're not, um, they're not outrageous in thinking that um, when they look at a student who clearly put in a lot of work on their project, they don't tend to put themselves in that same place because um, it's it's a shared peer environment, you know. And so that's a very interesting sort of side note to Hyperdocs. But yes, um, there's an apply section where we ask students to show what they know. That's great. I like that. Uh, it gives students also a chance to learn from their peers. Uh, and many times they'll absorb things better from their peers than they will from when the teacher says it. Even if they say the same thing in the same way, the students will learn from each other. But uh, that's that's great. That's wonderful. As long as they're learning, I'm happy. <laughs> um, so, uh, Sandy, were you going to ask something? Yeah, okay. So moving on to, from HyperDocs. You're, you say you're a foodie. I am. I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a food snob. Did you have a place, did you have a direction you want me to go with that question? No, go ahead. Tell us what's uh, Spanish food or. Okay. Um, you know, I, I live in Spain, but I'm not, I'm not necessarily particular to just Spanish food. Um, I will say, having lived here now uh, almost five years, um, I have found particular brands of things that I'm very drawn to. Um, so for an example, my wife and I, will, will we're, we're heading to dinner tonight, but we'll probably grab just a, an aperitivo, they call it, a glass of wine, before we get to dinner at a place that serves really good jamón iberico. Um, and they, they do ham a little differently here than they do anywhere else in the world. Um, and so it will be a very cured meat uh, that has a very oaky, acorny, sort of fatty, nutty flavor that kind of makes the underside of your tongue tingle. Um, so I've fallen in love with great jamón. But that's, that's, that's very Spanish. Uh, I've also fallen in love with olives from Spain, um, particularly olives from Camporial. And that is like the, um, the, royal, the royal gardens, the royal fields, so to speak, um, in direct translation of Spanish. But essentially, uh, this particular type or style of olive is very um, full-bodied. It's almost kind of crunchy. Uh, it's, it's almost as in, it has not sat in the brine as long. It's got a great flavor and you feel like you're really eating the olive. I'm also in love with craft coffee. Uh, and so I like to frequent the different roasteries here in Madrid and buy their different roasts of coffee and, and, and talk to the roasters about the different ways to grind and brew the coffee um, in the different various ways that I have at my desk at work. So I have a pour over and an AeroPress and a French press. And then at home, my wife has, has bought me a, you know, middle of the road espresso machine, nothing fancy, but it's nice. Um, and I enjoy kind of digging into that. Um, I'm from Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, originally. And so um, in the US, we have deep roots with uh, beer and spirits. And so in Columbus, Ohio, craft beer is a big thing. And I've fallen in love with the craft beer scene in Madrid, Spain, because it, it's, it's about five years behind the U.S. 
but in this particular way that it has followed the successes and pitfalls that has happened in the U.S. And so uh, in the U.S. they have probably 10 times the number of craft breweries, which means they have 10 times the number of mistakes and successes. And here they have just taken it back a notch and they've just learned from the successes. And so you get less selection, but you get more quality and more success in the brew. I love that. Um, and I live in an international capital city. And so um, one of the things that I've fallen in love with, especially working at an international school, are foods that I would never be exposed to uh, where I was in Ohio and Virginia. And so one of those is, for example, Korean food. Um, I just wasn't exposed to quality Korean food. And here I had the opportunity to take some courses from the mother of a student at my school on how to make kimchi, for example. And I don't know if you have a lot of experience with kimchi, but it is, I, I'm a big fan of fermented foods. I think it's really good for your body. Um, and, you know, little by little, not incredible amounts, it's good for you. I grew up on sauerkraut and bratwurst. My father is very German. Um, and so when I discovered kimchi and how to make it, I fell in love. And so I've, I've found a small place here that sells kimchi. So I'm a connoisseur of many different flavors and many foods. And absolutely, I would consider myself a foodie. I, I use Google Maps to make um, like saved lists of places to go. And I often find that when friends pre-COVID would visit Madrid, they would say, oh, you know, where should we go to get fill in the blank? And I, I, I constantly, I almost always have like a list for that. I have a list of coffee. I have a list of taco places. I have a list of sort of very traditional Spanish places to eat or date night or so. I, I, I enjoy it, but I wouldn't say that I have any like special traditional training. Um, I'm just your typical foodie who likes food. Well, that's good. Have you uh, tried any Swedish food? Ooh, okay, Swedish. I've never been, um, and I've only tried food, and so this is where I fall short. I've had, and I'm going to sound so ignorant here, I've had Stroop waffles, and I don't think that's Swedish. Ikea. Yeah, those are Stroop waffles, I think of more from like Amsterdam, the Netherlands, but... Um, Oh, right. Me, okay. Well, I would say when you talk about the uh, the flavors and the crunchiness of the olives and all these different tastes, how does meatballs and mash sound? <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> She's teasing. Tons and tons Be, nice. Of <laughs> Be nice, Sandy. I am. <laughs> No, no. The, uh, I, I, I never realized the lack of exposure to different foods and different opinions and different cultures associated with food and language. I believe food and language are, are very closely knit. Until I left the U.S., um, because a lot of what I experienced and I think in the United States, just being from Ohio and Virginia, and perhaps this was just my, where I grew up and where I lived, the United States is massive. Oh my gosh. Or Ohio fit inside of Spain. Like the United States is humongous. Um, and so there's so much happening. And so it's so hard to generalize anything about that entire country. But from my experience in the US, I never really got to latch on to very um, authentic arrangement of authentic ingredients um, based upon time periods and, and uh, tradition. And so a big thing that I learned here is that food is seasonal and that food is, is based heavily on the traditions associated with uh, culture and religion and language. And I mean, like one of the things that I love about Spain is every little pueblito that you go to, every little town, every they all have a dessert. 
Oh. Every one of them. They, wow. they have a dessert that is like unique to that little place. And they don't change dramatically from town to town to town, but if you skipped 10 towns, you would notice the big difference <laughs> in the different desserts. But you know, it's almost like language in that the dessert changes just slightly between large distances. And my wife and I absolutely love traveling around Spain and just sampling what it is that they consider to be that local flavor and thing yeah. in that space. Um, and then learning a little bit about um, the history of it, mm -hmm. you know, and why that's so important. Yeah, you find now, I think now more than uh, you in recent uh, times is the farm to table here in the U.S. You know, that seems to be, uh, I think, grabbing some of the local uh, recipes and the, the cultural, local, uh, historic and familial kind of recipes and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's it, I, I think the key is the travel. It, it's something about going, like you were saying, 10 places and going to the 10th place where you really notice the difference. But the more experiences like that that you have, I think the more you appreciate the unique characteristics and uh, uh, personalities of the different places you visit. For example, I could say the word Texas barbecue and some people would say, oh, mesquite, got to be mesquite. Or some people would say Texas barbecue, that's pecan. You know, or some would say that's oak, you know, so um, just those little the traveling from place to place. I think it just helps you appreciate people and what and what they do. And it, I would also, know, I'm sorry, I'm done. Well, I would also say that um, the the concentration is is easier to enjoy in in, in Europe because it's it's just smaller. So. The difference between Texas barbecue, between Dallas and Austin is the difference between like entire, entire generations and like countries of humans in, in Europe because everything's just so much more like packed up and little. Um, as an example, I can drive, the, the amount of time that it would take me to drive from Columbus, Ohio to West Palm Beach, Florida is the same amount of time that it would take me to drive from Madrid, Spain to um, um, Amsterdam, for example. And so the the like the number of the number of cultures and people that live between Madrid, Spain, and Amsterdam, and Ohio and Florida are massive. You know, and in the United States, there's just less because everything's so spread out. And so um, that's I think one of the advantages of being here. Uh, is that you can just experience more in less space. I don't know. I tell that to my friends a lot. Like what it would cost to take a taxi from Columbus, the center of Columbus to the airport, uh, that the cost of that taxi, I could fly to like three different countries from Madrid. Um, and that they're always like, what? That's crazy. But, you know, the distance isn't isn't that great. So That's pre-COVID, right? Now we have to see what the prices are post-COVID. Oh my gosh, Sandy, don't even get me started. <laughs> Post-COVID is is a whole, that's going to be like BC, AC, PC. Like that's, it's going to be this whole new like era of human existence. I'm not even someone, someone else mentioned that to me the other day. Now, before when we used to talk about AC and BC, it referred to Christ. Now it's going to refer to COVID. Well, I I think it speaks to how much interconnectivity humans have. We all essentially got our our sphere of influence and our our bubble of life all shrunk down. Yep, everyone's in the whole wide world. Doesn't matter whether you deny it or love it or you hate masks or love masks, it doesn't matter. Everything kind of got much more narrow. And the narrowing of things, whether it's a perspective or it's the content within your classroom or the narrowing of a budget, 
narrowing of things rarely produces a quality outcome. Um, in fitness, we say isolated ability results in, in your isolated outcomes. And so if I go to the gym and all I do is bicep curls, my legs aren't going to get bigger, right? It's just my biceps. Like I'm going, I'm going to isolate the things that I do unless I will get this isolated outcome. And I think humans thrive best when we have this diverse stimulus coming in. Um, and what we all experienced, whether our original lives were that diverse in the first place, no matter who you were, you experienced a narrowing of diversity in your life. And so, for example, someone living in Washington, D.C., probably pre-COVID had a very diverse life and during COVID had a less diverse life. But if, if you lived in Columbus, Ohio, your pre-COVID existence didn't match a D.C. existence. And so it was even more narrow for you. And so I think we saw a narrowing of opinions and we saw a narrowing of perspectives and we saw a narrowing of experiences. And it's just not good for anyone. It's not good for the human body to have a narrow experience on life uh, because what you get is a narrow outcome. And I'm, I'm rambling, but. No, well, I, I I, I agree with you in that respect, but I think also, don't you think that a limiting of tools can make people more creative? Because I saw more creativity from people who were like crammed into the limit, limited choices, but they were so creative and just, mm. you know, I, I think maybe that was just the, the negative situation find that when with my students if I give them too many tools they they get almost sensory overload but if I limit them and say okay use these three things and make your project or whatever or um, uh, you know it, there's something there's I think there's a benefit to limiting but then it, there's also it, it's so confining and so it's it's terrifying at first so Karen, what I'm hearing you say is that a limiting, a constraints in the outcome or the product that a teacher expects a student to produce is, is an environment that's ripe for creativity. When we, when we constrain what you're allowed to do, you are forced to be more creative. Uh, yeah. And that's the yeah. truth of innovation, right? You know, right, like, right, right. right. I only have these three things, and I have to be able to kill that rabbit in order to eat. Yeah, yeah. get really creative, right? Right, um, right. But to me, that's that's very much like uh, a constraint of of output, and so I feel like what what COVID did was produce this massive strain on the the input. Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I don't think that input constraints always result in output productivity. I think that True. abundance of input is fantastic. And the reason that we have teachers is because we don't need 23,000 gallon flow of output of information to humans. A teacher's job is to sort of look at the world of resources around us and say, I'm going to handpick these because I know that they're going to match the readiness and the needs of my learners, right? That's why you need that intermediary of a teacher because they have a rapport with that cohort of students and they understand their needs and their readiness um, and their profiles as a learner. I think I misquoted that before, but essentially, you know, you've, you, your students have a profile of learning, they have a readiness of learning and they have an interest level in the learning. Um, and you as a teacher need to identify those things. And that's how we uh, differentiate what their students need. And that's why educators are never going to be automated, right? You, you, can't, you can't use AI to understand the complexities of human behavior like that. And if you can, it's, it's nowhere in my lifetime. Um, because I, I've seen what AI can do and it's pretty clunky compared to what I do in the classroom as an educator. And so I, I think that what I'm hearing you say is, Yes, yes. If I tell my students that the output of their learning must fit within this, this circle, 
they are forced to get super creative to make sure the rocket ship lands on that target. But if I tell them that the resources that they're allowed to pull from are limited to this little circle, it doesn't necessarily induce creativity. Um, I think it, it doesn't induce anything but cutting corners or, or finding cheap ways to a cheap solution. Yeah. Some of what right. I think has done is sort of limited the input. But it, 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 you're exactly right, Karen. There are so many teachers that were like, this is not slowing me down. And they have excelled. They have excelled in virtual learning and they have excelled in hybrid learning and this concurrent models and, and all of these different ways that we have decided that teaching students is the right thing to do right now. It has absolutely challenged our perception of a classroom, our perception of a quality outcome for student learning. Um, it's, it's challenged our perception of, of, of the, the process that students should go through and how much involvement we as teachers should have. And it's challenged um, our perception of what a classroom even looks like. Um, and I think it's absolutely phenomenal what this virus has done for learning and education around the world, um, both in the negative and the positive sense. It's, it's phenomenal how much stress and strain it has put on educators around the world. And it makes my heart break to think about the students who have fallen through the cracks and the teachers who have burnt out or have been drowned in unfunded mandates. But it also has energized me in seeing the, the little flowers that have blossomed in the cracks of concrete and the students who have found their strides suddenly not um, um, straddled by a learning environment that doesn't work for them or a social structure that is considered healthy for kids but is actually detrimental to to the fringe population. It could go on and on, but um, change is a messy thing and it takes a creative mind to see the positive and the negative. Yeah, we've definitely seen that in the last year or so. But um, David, um, it's coming up to an end where we, I know. I talk too much, Sandy. No, 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 it's been amazing. Yeah. Um, we, we would love to have you back and tell us more uh, about, uh, you know, your learning experiences and. Uh, well, what brought you to Spain from Ohio? That's interesting. That sounds like a story. Yeah, so, both, of them, both of those, you know, I wanted an adventure. And I think that's a big part of, of learning in general is that as we become adults, we seek the adventure of learning and the adventure of what understanding new things provides us. And I think my learning and understanding, you know, the benefits of kimchi to how to grind coffee best for espresso to um, which ways I can manipulate my workouts to best benefit my life. You know, all of those little things um, are because I have this, in, this desire to improve my life. And I think that's when people talk about lifelong learners, what they're talking about are people who are lifelong improvers of self and improvers of the world around them. And they, they're lifelong doers. Um, and so, yeah, I would, I would absolutely love to come on and talk a little bit more about what my life looks like as being a lifelong doer and maker um, and coach and, and learner because that's, that's what makes, you know, when, when one teaches to learn, and I think that's, that's sort of the essence of everything that I do in life is that I'm, I want to constantly share the things that I know but only because I want to learn new things, either about those things or about the, the absence of those things. I can definitely say 
from uh, myself and Karen, if you agree with me, Karen, we've definitely learned from you today. A little bit about kimchi, right? <laughs> kimchi um, and, uh, yeah, hyperdocs. I've heard of it, but I never used them, so I'm going on there later. You probably have. You know, it's hyperdox is more of a mindset than it is a thing. Um, and it's the idea that we're going to encapsulate the greatest things that we know as an educator into something that empowers the learner to do without yeah. us as the educator. Um, not that they don't need us, but simply that um, more opportunities without contact to another human are, are going to benefit the society and the world around us. And I want to come go to Madrid now. <laughs> Please do, Sandy. Please do. I think Madrid is one of the most open European cities. Um, Catalonia just opened up. You can come down, uh, get yourself uh, uh, some some jamón ibérico bellota and some some wine, and it will be a fantastic trip. Uh, thank you so much, David, for sharing with us all your experiences. I'm looking forward to your hyperdoca on food. So the links that will go to all these different places. Awesome. What a great idea. I haven't even thought. Um, hopefully, hopefully you're around this July, uh, the 20th and the 29th. We'll be presenting for the Adobe Education Summit. Well, it will, it will be packed with learning about hyperdocs. So I oh, hope good. to see you there. Um, there will also be an absolute amazing uh, lineup of Adobe product and Adobe um, application learning. And so if you're interested in learning more about how to bring creativity to your classroom using HyperDocs or Adobe products or anything in between, um, it's going to be an absolute uh, festival of amazingness. So we hope to see you there. Um, we will be there, right, Karen? Yes, we will. Awesome. July, <laughs> July. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you to all our listeners as well. Don't forget to uh, follow us on uh, Twitter at chatwsk1. And you can also listen to all our episodes on Anchor, uh, Apple, Google, you name it. We are there. Everyone. <laughs> that was everything. You named every one of them. <laughs> okay. Ladies, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to your listeners. Uh, what an absolute amazing group of people. Thank you, David. Thank you, ladies. I'll see you later. <laughs>